Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 118th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. I go by JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are a leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Professor Charles Negi. And before I even get into introducing my guest, I wanted to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, uh, you can use the comment section to type in your questions and we will get to as many of them as we can. So our guest today, Charles Negi, is an author, a licensed psychologist, and a tenured associate professor of psychology from the University of Central Florida. Uh, he has studied race, ethnicity, and inter-ethnic relations for over 30 years. He has published over 60 studies in psychology journals about ethnicity and sexuality, and has presented his research um, and conducted training seminars throughout Latin America. In addition to his academic work, in 2020, he published White Shaming, Bullying Based on Prejudice, Virtue Signaling, and Ignorance, uh, the book, and uh, Professor Negi's social media commentary during the whole Black Lives Matter protests and riots of the same year triggered some woke graduate students to uh, mount a campaign to get him fired. Um, but unlike so many academics who have been similarly targeted, Professor Negi refused to bow down. And after a lengthy arbitration process, he has been reinstated at the university. So Professor, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, before jumping into your uh, recent experience with cancel culture, our viewers always love to know a bit about your origin story. So uh, maybe a bit about where you grew up and what led to your interest in psychology generally and inter-ethnic relations in particular. Um, well, I'm from Houston, Texas. And um, my father was Mexican-American and my mom was white. <clears throat> and of course, Houston is a, a very diverse city. Even when I was around, I was born in 1960. Uh, and, and then, of course, at, as a young adult, I moved to Southern California, which was even a more diverse area. So we have a, it's a humorous comment in psychology that many of us do what we call me-search, which is the <laughs> word research, because many of us, our research programs actually reflect something about ourselves, trying to learn something about ourselves. So <clears throat> in light of my background, my personal background as well as my living situation in Houston and Southern California. Uh, I was always interested initially in studying how Hispanic Americans seem to vary so much in the extent to which they acculturate to the U.S. culture. So that kind of when I got into grad school, <clears throat> I decided to forge a research focus on the acculturation process of Hispanics. And then, of course, the more I got into doing research and becoming a professor, uh, I started expanding my focus to include other ethnic groups and looking at other aspects of Latin Americans or people of Hispanic ancestry. 
So really quickly, I got my bachelor's degree from California State University, Fullerton, and then I got my PhD in psychology from Texas A&M University. And I started off teaching as a full-time professor at the University of Texas. It's now called University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, which is in the southern tip of Texas. Was there for four years and been at University of Central Florida for 24 years now. Okay, uh, so you were doing research um, and, and that it sounds like it was stemming from uh, your, your own experience uh, with having uh, parents. Bi-ethnic bi background. Parents. Yeah, um, well, that, that, that resonates a bit. I spent about 12 years running a nutrition institute and I was always struck by the fact that so many uh, registered dietitians appeared to be struggling with their weight and I you know and I think maybe that's partially what also motivated some of them to, to want to pursue that field. Um, you've also lived in three different countries, the US, Spain, El Salvador, uh, and you've traveled to over 40 countries. Um, how has that experience informed your research? Uh, those experiences have collectively both informed and influenced my research, not to mention my personal life, my worldview, et cetera. So most humans tend to be like goldfish in a goldfish bowl. The goldfish doesn't even know it's in water until it finds itself one day out of the water and then it becomes aware of it. So growing up in one country, as I did for part of my life, my early part of my life, I never really questioned anything about the United States. It just kind of did everything the way most people do, the things that we do. So it wasn't until I got to go out to other parts of the world and see how people really are diverse, to use a trite term. And so I learned not only a lot about other people, but I learned a lot about myself and the U.S. culture and Americans, <clears throat> because I had never questioned anything about the U.S. So in my mind, I, I learned what really are wonderful things about the U.S. that we tend to take for granted. I also learned about things that are not so good about the United States that I never knew were bad, but they are problematic in my view. <clears throat> um, so having such a broad perspective on humanity uh, clearly has had its infect, uh, effect on my research, excuse me. Great. Well, let's talk about something else which has had um, impact on your work and probably your perspective, uh, your experience with the, uh, the cancel culture campaign at the University of Central <clears throat> Florida. What happened? Because I'm, you know, I can tell from reading your book uh, that you take your job as a professor and as a teacher and an educator very seriously. Um, that you're not coddling your students, you care deeply about your students, uh, and you want to provide them with uh, an effective learning uh, environment. So tell us uh, what, how this happened to you. Okay, so let me start off by saying that I'm, I do not have an agenda in my studies or in my teaching. I do not go by an ideology. I'm not promoting an ideology. The only agenda I might have is that I want students to learn to question everything and to try to see the world the way the world seems to be. <clears throat> so um, I'm a very data-driven social scientist. 
I do my studies and whatever the data seem to indicate is the way I will portray that in my subsequent articles. And so, and that includes when I take a, when I try to examine the different cultural groups that I have in either my research or in my controversial course called cross-cultural psychology, uh, we take a critical look at these cultural groups, not a negative look, we're not trying to denigrate anyone, but by contrast, we're not trying to, I say we, me and my students, led by me, I'm not trying to romanticize any groups. <clears throat> so uh, my, uh, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Um, well, what happened, you know, what happened? How did, how did this happen? What triggered it? And um, yeah, because I'm, I'm taking, it wasn't the, the, the letter that you, you sent to your students when, um, which you reprint in the book. What I was leading to, and I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and we're having the George Floyd hysteria going on in the country. It seemed like the country was losing its mind. And people, of course, are pointing out incessantly that there's systemic racism in the United States and there's these disparities <clears throat> and the disparity between groups are all caused by racial discrimination. So I raised the question in a tweet uh, and I'm paraphrasing my, my tweet. The question was, it was a sincere question. <clears throat> if on average, African-Americans had the same behavioral profile as Asian-Americans, parentheses, being the most educated, having the highest income, committing the least crime, would we still be proclaiming that systemic racism is prevalent in the United States? <clears throat> And I just wanted to sort of provoke comments and discussion among Twitter folks. But that, along with another tweet of mine, which I was replying to someone else, and I mentioned the phrase black privilege, because we, we're, we're hearing white privilege thrown around quite a bit. <clears throat> and I pointed out that there is such a thing as black privilege. And I mentioned a few examples. <clears throat> so those two tweets, seem to draw the ire of uh, African-Americans, Black Lives Matter affiliates. And they started attacking me on Twitter, uh, going after University of Central Florida, demanding I be fired. And they uh, contacted the journals for which I serve as an editor, proclaiming I'm a racist. And if they don't remove me from the journal, they're going to portray the journal online as a racist journal. They contacted Texas A&M University, where I got my PhD like 30 plus years ago, demanding Texas A&M make a comment, a public comment about me, which they did a performative denunciation of me. Mm -hmm. Texas A&M didn't even know I existed after 30 years, and yet they need to... <clears throat> satisfy the, the mob. mob. So um, I wasn't worried about it at first because I have tenure at University of Central Florida. And I'm known on campus for being a, 
a data-driven controversial professor who just calls things the way they really are based on data in my class. So the university, the university knew that. But the problem was partly we had just acquired a new president one month before. And this president came to UCF, University of from day one that his primary mission was to convert the entire university on a diversity and equity and inclusion camp. Not to raise standard, academic standards, uh, not to try to encourage the best teaching effectiveness, etc., just to promote this ideology, diversity. So <clears throat> I had already communicated with him, giving him a welcoming letter, letting him know that I myself am a minority, and I certainly am pro-minority, but I already knew the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology was tough. So I invited him to have a meeting with me so we can discuss his agenda. He didn't get back to me, but a month later when the, the stuff hit the fan with the Twitter crisis, it fell into his lap. So he thought, here's a chance to get rid of someone who's not going to be conforming to his agenda. So he ordered the Office of Institutional Equity, which is supposed to be an office that just makes sure there's no genuine harassment or discrimination occurring on campus. Actually, it's, a, it's an office that enforces the ideology by and large. And so they were informed to launch a massive investigation into my entire 20, at that time, I've been at UCF for 20 years. They, in my background, they did massive solicitations from every possible avenue or venue to get complaints from students from my entire career. And I've taught over 30,000 students. I've taught over 30,000 students. And uh, they managed to find two to 300 students who came forward. And half of them just said lies about things that I've said in class. And the other half would take things that I've said, but put a little nefarious twist on it so that it sounded far worse than what I had actually said. So in the end, they, they, six, they, they didn't know what to do, I don't think. Now, I was still teaching, I was under investigation. Um, the director of that office interrogated me for two days, four and a half hours each day, and asking me just nonstop. In 2012, did you say this comment in the class? In 2014, did you say this comment? 2005, did you say this comment? And just went on for four and a half hours. And then I thought it was done after half a day. She said, we've only finished half. Okay, back the next week for another four and a half hours. I wasn't permitted to have anyone represent me. My private attorney was present, but she wasn't allowed to say a word. <clears throat> so anyway, the next semester came and COVID came. So we were all teaching online. I was still under investigation <clears throat> and I just thought nothing was gonna happen because I knew I had done nothing that would warrant any serious discipline, certainly not termination. But uh, the first week of January, I got noticed that they're putting me on paid administrative leave. Uh, they're canceling my spring classes. And then a week later, they said that they're terminating me in seven days and they produced a 244-page report, 244-page report on which they just put together everything they could. Um, 
including not only did they claim that I created the, uh, I engaged in harassment or discrimination in the classroom based on what I saying all these years, but they found things from my past. From in, if you recall from my white shaving book, I think I told a story about how 11 years ago, I was in Peru about to take a flight to El Salvador and a fl- uh, an airline employee told me false information that I needed a, a, a vaccination. Right. And I couldn't fly without it. And then he referred me to a clinic down the end, at the end of the airport. Mm-hmm. Ended up paying $17 and getting a shot. I don't know what went in my arm, but the lady knew I had to put have two doses of it. So she put down that I had a previous dose, which was false. So I used that story to, in the context of showing how much corruption there mm-hmm. is in America. And of course, UCF claimed that I bribed a healthcare. <laughs> well, so because I, I want to uh, kind of get to some of our audience questions. So basically what I'm taking from you is that it was, it was not really a student campaign. It was a, uh, an online kind of campaign that was driven by Black Lives Matter activists your university succumbed, but you were able to come back and challenge that or take them to court? It was, a, it was initiated by students mm-hmm. and people from around the country who were not students. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then from there, it took on a life of its own with the current administration who wanted to probably get rid of me because they knew I wasn't going to accept their DEI ideology. <clears throat> Um, and they also, I'm sure, wanted to set it. I think the president was concerned the Black Lives Matter might have started a fire UCF president campaign, like mm-hmm. a um, And that's be the last thing he wanted to have a national campaign. He just got there a month earlier, and a national campaign might be from Black Lives Matter demanding he be fired if he didn't do something. So uh, it took me a year and a half. They fired me in January of 2021. Luckily for me, uh, we have a union and it's a fairly strong union for all the Florida public universities. So they, they assigned me a, a attorney and uh, picked up the tab for it. And so we grieved my, my termination, took a year and a half. I had a four day hearing with an arbitrator and the, both the UCF attorneys and my union attorney had 30 days to produce a closing statement about why each side thought they should prevail. And after they turned that in, the arbitrator spent four days getting his ruling back to everyone that I should be fully reinstated with all back pay, all benefits, etc. So wow. That occurred on May 16th. And they're supposed to pay me almost a quarter of a million dollars in back pay. Hmm. But they haven't paid me a dime. Oh, God. They haven't paid me wow, a dime. Wow, that sounds like uh, quite, the, quite the ordeal. Um, you know, we all thought we had a stressful 2020 and 2021, but, but I think uh, you, you probably take the cake in terms of having one of the uh, most darkest chapters um, of your of your career and of your life. And um, it's uh, no, no stranger to us here at the Atlas Society, one of our senior uh, scholars, Professor Jason Hill, philosophy professor at DePaul is, is also um, dealing and taking legal action to, uh, to overcome 
Uh, again, minority, he's black, he's gay, um, but he has very strong pro-Israel views. And uh, so he's, um, they're trying to cancel him for that. And he's not, he's not taking it down. So if you guys haven't gotten together, maybe, maybe you should. Uh, now, so there was what happened on Twitter. Uh, and then of course, your book, had exquisite timing in terms of coming out really in, in the middle of this. Um, this is quite a, a well-researched, reasonable book, White Shaming, Bullying Based on Prejudice, Virtue Signaling, and Ignorance. Um, so I'd like to, to jump into that and also want to in, remind all of you watching us um, to jump in with your questions because I uh, really would love to get to some of those as well. But let's talk a little bit about this phenomenon of white shaming. Um, you know, we've had James Lindsay, uh, author of Race Marxism on the show to talk about sort of the um, historical academic roots of critical race theory. And we have our, our latest Draw My Life uh, video on that as well. So, um, so, how did how does how did this come about? How did um, it, it come about as uh, a a force? I mean, you tend to say that there were some very good things that were going on um, that minorities were claiming the the right to define themselves and um, to have the their ideas and uh, contributions receive recognition. Uh, that was on par with uh, the value and, uh, of those ideas and contributions. So where did things go off the rails? Okay, so I'm reporting in the book what I perceive to be happening starting from the early 1980s onward. So as I tried to report in the book, prior to, let's say, late 1970s, I think it, it was common it's just to be fair that a lot of the literature in, coming from universities about women or gays or, or ethnic minorities were actually written by white men. And uh, much of that literature seemed to focus on the challenges that these different groups had. And I noticed when I was an undergraduate that something started to happen in the early 1980s. And that was, it seemed like these different groups that typically don't uh, have much in common with each other. What I mean by that is uh, typically you don't find African-Americans advocating for Hispanic rights and vice versa. So they started, people who are, you know, I'm not sure what to call them, maybe activists or just concerned educators. They started coming together in the early eighties and they wanted to send a message to white men that they, they being women, minorities, sexual minorities, they wanted to be able to define themselves in the literature, in college classes, et cetera. I'm fully on board with that. And, not, and also in addition to them wanting to be able to define themselves and not have someone else define them for them, uh, they were pushing to have their contributions acknowledged, and I'm fine with that too, provided the contributions meet 
the standards of a given discipline. So, so far I'm kind of on board with all this, uh, but it was their tactic that they used to bring about change. And that tactic was they decided they were going to ruin the life. They were like the early cancelers. Any white man, researcher, professor who said anything about Blacks, Hispanics, women, gays, even if it were accurate, valid, they were going to smear that person as a racist or a sexist or a homophobe and not just call them one time to their name and let go of it, but camp out at, in front of their office at the university and camp out in front of the deans or chair of the person's office demanding they be fired. So having done that a few times, white male professors got the message quickly, this is serious. And so quickly in the early 80s, white men stopped writing about minorities, women, and gays, unless they said very flowery, romantic, positive things about them. So I didn't like that. Uh, silencing people is not the way to bring about positive, positive change. Not to mention you ending up, you're ending up with literature that's not accurate. It's not accurate. It's romanticizing groups. And so, and then the late 80s and early 90s, I noticed that these same individuals who were involved in bringing about, bringing about this change, they, were, they would openly, publicly denigrate whites and denigrate heterosexuals and men. And whenever I would mention to people that this is unacceptable because I thought we we're a country that's trying, trying to minimize and eliminate racism, sexism, et cetera. I would always hear the same thing. Oh, they're just minorities. It's okay. And I thought, no, no, it's not. No, it's not okay. But it seems like whites and men and heterosexuals just dismissed all these, I think, unacceptable expressions of racism and sexism, sexism coming from minorities, women, and gays. I've been going for several decades. And so I started writing this book in around 2016 or 17 because I thought this is reaching a level that's starting to concern me because, you know, we're having changing demographics. You know, whites are diminishing every passing years, five years, 10 years, and, and people of color are expanding. And yet the rhetoric, the anti-white rhetoric seemed to just continue relentlessly. And uh, so I'm, here I am writing this book, not knowing what was coming around the corner because the George Floyd incident just went, took this phenomenon that I'm describing where minorities are openly hostile towards whites and men and heterosexuals, just took it and catapulted it 20 yards in the air. So that's where I think the, the the trajectory was to how we got to where we are today. Right. <clears throat> um, you also write in the book that historically most minority groups with some exceptions have taken little interest in the agendas of other minority groups, mm -hmm. uh, but that changed in the 1980s. How so? Well, I think they found a common cause. So there is literature in social psychology talks about the enemy of my enemy is my friend, essentially. And so these groups that 
typically didn't concern themselves with the agenda of other groups, that they now had a common enemy and a common cause. And that was to combat in their minds, whites and men and heterosexuals. So there's a, a researcher named Vaca, I think his name is, he wrote a book called Presumed Alliance, which he addresses some of this that we, we used to always, we got to, he was, he's referring to, his book is about how we now think there's a, an alliance between these groups. And I would argue there's still, there still is not an alliance. Only if it comes to the issue of being anti-white, that's when a facade is put forward when these different groups come together. But once you remove that anti-whiteness uh, or anti-women, anti-trans, whatever, focus, these groups go into their separate camps. All right. Um, and we've got a lot of spectacular questions. I'm going to get to them shortly, but just so that people can sort of recognize this phenomenon that you're talking about, what are some examples of white shaming um, that we might recognize from, let's say, you know, popular culture or in education? They go from the, the relatively benign to the very problematic, in my opinion. You know, benign examples. If you, if you look at every commercial that's been on TV for the last 10 plus years, if the commercial has a black person and a white person in the commercial, the, the black person will always be portrayed as the sane, rational, mature adult in the room. The white person will be portrayed as some buffoon or doofus doing something kind of dumb. Um, but then you go to like diversity workshops that corporations are mandating across the country. I think people who have participated either voluntarily or it was required for them to participate in diversity training workshops walk out feeling like if they're white, they've been badgered because the, the whole real intent of diversity workshops is to kind of wag the finger in white people's faces and talk about how they, they and their people have done all these bad things in the past and they're still doing them supposedly today and they should and they should feel responsible for things that people did in the past. And then we had these courses on college campuses. Stanford has a course, Stanford University has a course in anthropology about whiteness and all they do in the course, if you, if you were to read the syllabus, in fact, I covered this in my, my book, it just talks about how to abolish whiteness, white supremacy, microaggression, white privilege. I want you to understand your viewers. Imagine if a university were to permit a professor to have a course on blackness and the entire course focused on all the negative things about African-Americans in terms of their disproportionate commission of crime, their on average poor math, their on average poor performance in reading, uh, their they, they commit, on average, they commit more hate crimes, more murders than anyone, any other group, et cetera. Imagine an entire course just focusing on denigrating African-Americans. It would not be permitted. It would not be permitted. And yet these courses, it's not just Stanford University, other universities across the country have similar courses in a variety of uh, departments. Also, yeah. okay, so K through 12, I mean, all these K through 12 schools that are, sometimes divide kids into affinity groups. And so they're dividing them from whites versus non-whites. And they're, 
in various degrees, they're communicating to the little white kids that they're, they should be ashamed and they're, because they're privileged and the, the minorities are being told that they're, they're, they're victims of oppression. And the media seems to support all this. And I mean, what the hell do we want? A racial war? Seriously? And it seems like that's what a variety of factions want. Media, universities, corporations, et cetera, politicians, et cetera. Well, we have a couple of questions along those lines coming in across our various social media platforms. Uh, Josiah on Instagram is asking, and, and I'll ask you whether or not you even agree with the premise of, of the question. He's asking, do you think the promotion of white guilt and shaming, essentially the, the white shaming that you're talking about, is causing radicalization in whites becoming exactly what these minorities are condemning them of being. So, you know, Excellent there's question. kind of a two, two part question, whether there, this radicalization is occurring and whether white shaming is, is driving it. Well, it, it's hard for me to make a statement about cause and effect on matters, such, such broad matters as those two variables, the white shaming vis-a-vis -vis the alleged radicalization of some whites. But um, so I don't keep up with quote unquote radical white groups like white supremacists or the KKK, I don't follow them. But so I'm gonna try to, I can't answer the question directly. I would speculate, and that's all I can do is speculate that the more this country promotes that each group ought to have a racial identity, Charles Murray has made this case uh, in his book, Facing Reality, that we should expect that at some point, some to many whites will begin to feel the need to form their own little coalition among whites because they feel like they're gonna be trampled upon, especially as every passing five or 10 years, we're gonna see that the number, the percent of whites in the Finishing, and the number of non-whites are going to be increasing. So uh, to answer the question quickly, probably, but I can't prove it. Okay. Uh, let's take a look here. Um, not related to race. This is Eddie K on Twitter. Uh, said, do you recall that the male shaming ad that Gillette had at the Super Bowl a few years ago. Uh, do you think both whites and males are subject to a lot of shaming? And I thought that was interesting going back to your, uh, your book and uh, without defending some of the things that um, Donald Trump had said, you said, well, if you used the term and applied it to uh, men as opposed to to women, you know, that it's actually quite common. So do you recall that specific ad and then maybe to the general question about whether whites and males are both being subject to shaming? In my book, I gave some examples of commercials and of similar nature to that Gillette uh, advertisement. Yes, I don't recall much. I do recall it existed, but I don't recall the details of that particular commercial. But um, I, I do recall thinking that this is just unacceptable 
that now on public television, commercials targeting a racial class and with the intent of shaming them, essentially. Okay. Uh, Candace Salvatore on Instagram asks your thoughts on single race clubs or organizations in college. Um, are they damaging racial relations? So that would be things like black dorms and, mm -hmm. you know. Well, here's, here's my opinion. First off, I think it's natural for groups to tend to want to hang around their own kind. So I'm not necessarily opposed to people tending to hang around their own kind. What I'm opposed to is when it is institutionalized by either the government, a university, or a company, etc. So if, you know, if, if just take an example, if a group of black students want to rent an, an, in an apartment complex and they try to get in the same section of the apartment complex, that doesn't bother me. It's when an institution like the university is facilitating that and supporting it and simultaneously would never, never let whites do the same thing. So it's sending a really wrong message. And that's been going on for a long time that it's acceptable for these groups to segregate with the blessing and the facilitation of institution. And yet in my book, I covered an example of a young lady at a high school who tried to form a ethnic club based on Caucasians. And she didn't have bad intentions if you read all about her. It was open to everyone, but she was denounced, vilified, and had to even leave the high school to go to some other high school because she was just smeared as a, a horrible racist. So I, Again, things like ethnic student organizations are contributing to increasing tribalism, which may not end well for us. I'd like to, to get back to your, your book. And, uh, you know, of course, as I mentioned up at the top, the Atlas Society is introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand. And Ayn Rand's insights into racism, I think, are some of the most uh, compelling out there. Specifically, she had this to say, like every other form of collectivism, racism is a quest for the unearned. It is a quest for automatic knowledge, for an automatic evaluation of men's characters that bypasses the responsibility of exercising rational or moral judgment, and above all, it is a quest for an automatic self-esteem or pseudo self-esteem. So um, given your many years of, of study into to racism and, and racial relations, uh, how does that square with your observations in terms of white shamers motivations? Are they trying to get some kind of unearned or automatic um, whether it's prestige or some kind of advantage by, by taking this socially approved shortcut? Well, without disagreeing with what Ms. Rand has articulated, uh, I have my own views. Okay, well, we, you wanna hear them. Okay, well, I think racism can have multiple motives. So, and each person who has a negative view of another group can have a different type of motive from, from someone else. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that back to my or, 
earlier comment, I think it's natural for people to tend to like their own group. We sometimes have a soft word for that in the social sciences called ethnocentrism, just thinking that your group is kind of the better group. That doesn't bother me. It's the, dis, it's the strong dislike or hostility or hatred for some other group that becomes problematic. So uh, a, a common popular idea that floats around that's totally inaccurate is that minorities cannot be racist. And the people who promote that idea say that it's because they don't have the power. A, you don't need power to be a racist. B, minorities have lots of power in the United States. If they can get you fired, you don't like, you don't like your views, that's a lot of power. Not to mention there's over 2 million businesses owned by African-Americans in the US. There's over 3 million businesses in the US owned by Hispanics. You know, we've had Obama for eight years, a black president, the, his attorney general, Eric Holder, for almost eight years, a, a black attorney general. Uh, we've had uh, under George Bush, we had an attorney general who's a Mexican-American from Texas. M most major cities have black mayors. Their chief of police are black, et cetera. But we have the black caucus. I can go on, but the idea that, quote unquote, we don't have power and therefore we can't be racist, it's just nonsense. Those individuals, in my opinion, are looking for an excuse to be able to express their own racism and not be called out. So, um, you know, people, there's, there's all kinds of theories about why are people racist. Sometimes it's competition, you know, economic competition, sometimes it's to improve your self-esteem. Uh, sometimes you're just a, you're just a hateful person. <laughs> And so, and sometimes you've had sometimes you've had bad experiences with a small number of people from a certain group, and you end up realizing from that point onward about everyone from the group. So. Hmm. Well, that that does give a, a richer uh, spectrum to it. Another question um, coming in from Facebook: Michael Caswell asks, uh, looking out at at your research that you've done on different ethnic groups, um, do you think that there is any particular racial group that struggles or refuses to assimilate into American culture as a whole? So, I, you know, he might be talking about immigrant groups or I'm not sure if that applies to, to yeah. groups that have been here for a long time. I'm going to pivot a little bit on that question. And here's what I'm going to say, which might surprise some people. So, Obama was once asked by someone who was a very white liberal, do you think the criminal justice system is biased against blacks? And Obama, who I don't necessarily agree with many of his politics, but I, I must confess he's a very smart man and a person in his responses. He said, this is what he said. He said, I think there's an intersection between bias within the criminal justice system against blacks with the fact that for multiple reasons, African-Americans commit a disproportionate amount of crime in the United States. So he was acknowledging that, and from his point of view, his opinion, there is racial bias in the criminal justice system, but he didn't put all the blame for potential bias on the feet of the system, but the fact that even though the majority of blacks don't commit crime, a large portion of crime is committed by blacks. So having said that, I'm gonna give a similar, what I think is a nuanced answer 
even though it's again a, a pivoted answer from the question. I do think in the United States, others have made this case as well. There is a divide. The divide is black versus non-black. So, and what I'm getting at is I think there's a trend among Asians, Hispanics, and whites to sort of share some views that, that join them together in terms of thinking the system is relatively fair. As long as you work hard to become educated, you'll have a chance at a decent life. Versus African-Americans who, there are many African-Americans who also share in that view, but there are many who do not. So I think there are some people who are trying to make the case that the U.S. isn't just anti-white per se, it's more anti-Black. There's a more of an anti-Black sentiment that exists than more of anything else, any other type of bigotry regarding race. So just like previously, I, I forgot the, the essence of the question, <laughs> but... Uh, I, yeah, I, it, was, it was about which, which groups, like if there's any particular groups that you've seen, okay. you know, Thank who you. are Thank the you. ones who jump Thank in? You. Like, let's just, even if we were just to take it in terms of immigrants, like who are the ones that just come to, you know, they get their citizenship and boom, they want to do everything American. They want to get the language. They, uh, and, and if there are other groups on the opposite side of that spectrum who have a very hard time assimilating, and that might, you know, possibly be for things like having nothing to do with, uh, with racial identity uh, could have to do with language. I'm going to tie, oh, okay. tie in. I want to, I don't want to let go of what I was commenting on. If you don't mind. Okay. Uh, I still think society might be moving in the direction of where we are a society divided by blacks versus non-blacks, which suggests there is a group African-Americans who may struggle, and it's not all on them, it's on us as well, to fully accept and integrate that particular racial group. And just like Obama, the reason I brought up the Obama situation because that's not all based on animus. That's not, if, to whatever extent what I just said is, has any validity to it, that there is this anti-Black bias that exists. It's not just based on pure anti-Black prejudice. It's partly based on how some to many African-Americans behave in terms of on average being the worst people in school in math and reading, committing more crime, more murders. We see on the internet these incidents that are just horrible, these brawls that are occurring in the airport and high schools and McDonald's with a small, small, small group of Blacks committing them, but the whole world sees those things. And so there's some misbehaviors occurring among some African-Americans, which is giving the entire group a bad name. But, so I think that's one group, I, I, I guess that person's question, that's one group that I think struggles to be totally integrated with the rest of the country. And then regarding immigrants, here's the deal with this. If you let and this is my opinion. My, it's an informed opinion, but it's still an opinion. If you let immigrants come in in small numbers, there's more pressure on them to assimilate 
not to mention many immigrants come here because they're attracted to some very basic values that we have in the United States. Freedom of speech. Already free speech, law and order, uh, the idea that if you work hard, there are, there are opportunities for you to uh, ascend your mm-hmm. mobility ladder or whatever. So, but the problem is if you let lots of immigrants in at the same time, they start forming their own little communities. And these have the potential to become miniature micro countries in and of themselves. We have Dearborn, Michigan, which I haven't been there, but I've seen and read where Muslims and everything about Islam is visible everywhere. And you hear the call to prayers in the streets. Um, you, you got East LA and even sections of Houston where for miles and miles and miles, you would think you're in Mexico. And I've worked in East LA for three years in a grocery store, LA being Los Angeles, of course. And you'd be amazed at how many people live in Los Angeles for decades and you would never know it. They know nothing about the United States. They don't speak a word of English. Um, and I would be, I was just so dumbfounded. I worked in a grocery store at the cashier, meeting these individuals, chatting with them from the community. And I'd be shocked to find out they've lived here 15, 20 years. And I swear you would never know it. It's like they had never met, left Mexico. So, okay. Yeah, so, you know, um, what you'd mentioned Obama and uh, he's biracial, uh, you yourself are a bi-ethnic. And so I, I did uh, want to ask about people who are biracial individuals, how do they fit into the whole white shaming construct? Is there even an incentive to identify with the non-white heritage to avoid being shamed? Well, you know, I can't speak for the millions of people in the United States who are multi-ethnic, multi-racial, whatever. So in a broad sense, of course, our country rewards people being minorities, scholarships, um, being given special consideration for jobs and admission to elite colleges, et cetera. So frankly, I think they'd be darn fools to not take advantage of that in their own best and there are those who are like myself who I always let my students know I'm of both backgrounds, I'm Tex-Mex, and I'm, not, I'm neither ashamed nor proud of my background. It, it's not that important to me. It's my qualities as a person are more important to me than my either sexual orientation or my... But, so to, in a broad sense, of course, there are incentives for some to with their minority status, not their white status. But I'm, I'm sure there are people, I know there are people like me who uh, just say it as it is, identify yeah. them as they are. Um, so we're coming to the top of the hour. I do want to get into some of the solutions that you advance at the end of your book. Um, you know, 10 ideas in there. And uh, we've had a lot of audience engagement. I've have a feeling there's going to be quite a few people, and I hope you guys do go out there and uh, and get this book because it really is um, fascinating. A lot of great research in here, and as I mentioned, some solutions at the end of the book. So, what are some of those that each of us as individuals could start implementing? You know, in our own sphere of influence. Okay, so you know you've already learned that 
if I don't say things at the tip of my mind, I'll forget it. So mm-hmm. let me say that to your viewers, my email address is charlesnegi at gmail.com. They're free to email me with any questions or subsequent conversations they want to have with me. And I'll do my best to respond to each and every one. That, Thank you. That's very generous. First time on our on our webinar. Uh, having we'll put it, we'll put it in the uh, in, in the chat. Okay. So uh, the first thing I would really advocate for is that our school systems at all levels ought to provide an historically accurate education about issues of race and slavery and so on and so forth. So what do I mean by historically accurate? So, you know, you hear people claiming that um, conservatives don't want students to know that about slavery in the United States. No, I, I think everyone knows about slavery that occurred in the United States. And I don't think, I don't, I'd be shocked if there are people who are trying to really uh, prevent that information from being taught in schools. But the problem is so much more, there's so much more information about slavery that's not taught in schools. Number one, there were about 12 million black Africans who were forced to come to the new world to be slaves. About 2 million died en route. So that's leaving 10 million. Over 96% of them went to Latin America. Less than 4% came to the United States. Why you know, why shouldn't our students know that the bulk of Black Africans during the Atlantic slave trade went to Latin America and the Caribbean uh, instead of just focusing on the U.S. all the time? Not that I'm trying to, not that I'm trying to absolve uh, whites from the past in the U.S. who had slaves, but if you're really going to want to be educated about slavery, you should know the broader picture of it. The, another thing is, all of those 12 million were captured put miles and miles and miles to the ports of the coast of West Africa by other black Africans. It was black Africans who captured all of them and put them on the international market, the slave market. Uh, and Native Americans practiced slavery for thousands of years before Europeans ever came. And even when Europeans did come, they bought tens of thousands of black Africans the trail of tears, that sad story, that sad sob story that's used to induce white guilt. You know, it's a true story. You know, white farmers and ranchers with the government's help re- removed Native Americans with pay, I should say, and had them marched to Oklahoma and Louisiana for reservations. But what's not told is those five tribes took with them their over 5,000 Black African slaves that they owned. They forced them to march with them so that they would have them in Oklahoma continuing to be a slave for them. If we knew a full picture of things like slavery uh, and even colonization, colonizing every group, oh my God, the Aztec Empire, the Inca Empire, the Maya Empire colonized, stole lands from other Indians, brutalized, slaughtered people. Different Black African kingdoms did the same thing. Of course, the Japanese Empire, Chinese dynasties, the Arab empires. So there's so much more to colonization and slavery, et cetera, that I think ought to be included so that people have a historically accurate education. So that's one thing that people ought to demand in K through 12 and at universities. 
fear is you hear people saying that whenever we encounter racism, we should speak up about it. Whenever we encounter someone mistreating someone, we should speak up about it. Well, it seems like they only want you to speak up if you think it's a white person engaging in some type of racial mistreatment for someone else. Other instances where minorities are the ones who are actually manifesting some racial mistreatment of someone seems to go uncriticized. We should find it within ourselves to point out to those individuals on that occasion that they're the one behaving like a racist right now. Now, it's gonna, I know it's going to cause a confrontation, so you have to decide for yourself whether you're up for that battle or not. But uh, I gave some examples in my book of minorities in public during the daytime engaging in clearly racist behavior, and no one would say anything to them about it. The other is uh, parents and students at colleges, if they only knew the extent to which they're being indoctrinated these days by not only the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology, but a bunch of half-truths about colonization, about slavery, about racism. You know, racism exists, exists all over the world. In my book, I gave plenty of examples and tried to document them. But so they're getting all this indoctrination, either blatant indoctrination or passive indoctrination by leaving out truths about other groups. Students and parents ought to demand that universities stop indoctrinating and stay neutral and try to present information from multiple angles, etc. So I'm going to say, go with, since we just have a couple of uh, minutes left, I am going to encourage our viewers go out and uh, get Professor Nagy's book because um, I thought each of the, of the 10 solutions that he offered at the, at the uh, end were really worth digging into at length. Um, we're not gonna have time to cover all of them here. Uh, and we can also keep up with you. Um, I understand at, on Twitter, probably primarily, would you say? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and I'm pretty active and it's my Twitter name, Charles Nagy. So right. uh, it's me. And, uh, and so are you back to teaching this uh, coming fall semester? Are we After a year and a half, I just taught courses this past week. Wow. So far, so good, but I, I am recording all my lectures. Wonderful. Well, uh, we, I, I hope those students uh, appreciate it. Um, of course, uh, that remains to be seen, but I'm, uh, I think we can all take some inspiration from uh, the struggle that you've been through and, and from your, your victory and maybe uh, take some lessons into our own lives that uh, we don't just have to accept the way things are going. We can, each of us do something about it and continue the struggle. So thank you very much, Professor Nagy. I really appreciate uh, you taking this time today and um, also for your continued uh, efforts to speak out for individualism and mm -hmm. reason and uh, and freedom. So free speech. Free speech. All right. Um, thanks all of you for asking such excellent questions for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. If you are a regular on these programs, uh, I think you probably at least agree with Ayn Rand that uh, you don't want to be one of the moochers or the looters or the freeloaders. So if you are really enjoying the content that the Atlas Society puts out, please consider making a tax deductible donation to support our work. 
and come on back next week. I'm going to be speaking with actor and objectivist Mark Pellegrino. We're going to talk about his Ayn Rand origin story and as well his efforts with the American Capitalist Party. So hope to see you then. Thank you, by the way. Thank you.